Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. I've got two special guests joining me today. Uh, first off, our medical director, Rob Dixon, is here with me in the office. And joining me remotely is a uh, friend of the podcast, longtime friend and colleague of Dr. Dixon and I, uh, our podcast toxicology expert uh, out in Phoenix, Dr. Jerry Snow. Hey, Jerry. Hey, Rob. Hey, guys. How you doing, man? We are we are good. It's uh, pretty chilly here in in southeast Texas this week. Yeah, it's just know, like Indiana weather. Isn't I don't it? know what you, I don't know what you guys got out in Phoenix. I'm sure it's better than 38 and windy. So it's pretty pretty nasty here. Yeah, it was 40s this morning, but it will be in the mid 60s by midday. Ah, jealous, jealous. I wouldn't mind totally jealous. All right. Well, I'm excited about talking about this, and thanks for coming on, Jerry. I mean, this is a topic that I'm not going to have a whole bunch to say about because I don't know a whole bunch about. So I'm hoping to to get a lot of education out of this as well. The this the weather intro here did have a bit of a purpose, right. In that uh, it's the time of year when people start start using kerosene heaters and start shutting the uh, warehouse doors, and we have to start thinking about carbon monoxide and carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, so I wanted to bring uh, Jerry on to to teach us both uh, and teach all the listeners out there some of the things we need to watch for. And first off, Jerry, let's start with the basics. Where does carbon monoxide come from and why is it bad for us? Yeah, absolutely. So carbon monoxide is actually a very simple compound, obviously. It's just a carbon and it's a simple oxygen molecule. It's a colorless, tasteless, odorless gas, which is generally you can say it's formed when you have incomplete combustion of carbon compounds. Um, common sources of carbon monoxide and poison would include anything that obviously involves combustion. So simple fires, engine exhaust, um, faulty furnaces is a big one, and even using grills and other things like such as generators, especially in closed spaces. Um, and I think it's also important to keep in mind that there are probably 40 to over 50,000 of cases of CO poisoning treated annually in the U.S. And that's just what we know what comes in the emergency department. So it's still probably grossly over underestimated because there's definitely probably some minor poisonings that occur where people don't even seek care um, and despite the um, increase in prevention and education carbon monoxide poison is still a very common occurrence unfortunately and that's throughout the world it's one of the major causes of morbidity and mortality when it comes to poison across the globe so why is it bad so well carbon monoxide the mechanism of toxicity is actually quite complex i think first and foremost people are likely to be aware of the effects that carbon monoxide has on hemoglobin. And that's what they're probably most familiar with. So hemoglobin has more than a 200-fold greater affinity for carbon monoxide than oxygen. So carbon monoxide will actually compete with oxygen for binding to hemoglobin. Obviously, this is going to reduce the ability for hemoglobin to carry and deliver oxygen. But in addition to this, carbon monoxide also causes a change in the hemoglobin that actually increases the affinity of oxygen to hemoglobin so the so the, the oxygen that's already bound it stays bound so you have this further impairment of its release and its deliver delivery but really that's just one of the many mechanisms and there are several others and i don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole but i'd like to mention just a few to give you an idea of just how complex carbon monoxide poison really is so it's been well demonstrated in several different studies that also carbon monoxide inhibits mitochondrial respiration and it does this through shutting down 
oxidative phosphorylation, almost similar to cyanide. So ultimately, this is going to inhibit your body's ability to produce ATP, which is which, which is what the energy that really your, runs your body. So you can imagine this is not a very good thing. Also, things that contribute to the toxicity is carbon dioxide leads to free radical generation, and this damages cells and tissues. You also have effects on platelets and increases nitric oxide and also causes platelet activation. And you get a lot of inflammatory effects as well as all these oxidative stresses, and all these play a role in the toxicity of, of carbon dioxide. So there's inflammatory effects, there's immune effects, and so that's why it's very complex, and it's not simply explained alone by the, hema, um, the interaction between hemoglobin and carbon dioxide and oxygen delivery. It's, it's just not that simple. I think one of the more interesting studies that was done actually with dogs is they took dogs to a point, they poisoned them where they were like 70-plus percent carbon dioxide. Of course, all the dogs died from this, but then they took that same blood from those dogs, transfused it to other dogs, who did not have any degree of carbon dioxide, and those animals actually didn't get that ill. So obviously, it's there's more going on there than just a single level um, and just a delivery oxygen that plays a role there. Well, you had me. I feel smarter already, Jerry. You had me at uh, displaces the as says a two hundred times greater affinity. But man, I, I. If anybody I, out there, I is, feel enlightened. Like wow, you know, if that's any, awesome. Any, if any of the listeners are out there playing uh, toxicology bingo, Jerry hit <laughs> hit several there. That's right, he's your we, man. We had uh, J.W. We, Snow. We, we had uh, screws up the mitochondria, which is bad because you lose the ability to create energy. If you remember, it's the I, I think about this like an eighth grade the war biology, the war course, yeah, of eighth the grade cell, biology right. student. Um, we we got an oxidative phosphorylation in there. Uh, we've got some uh, free radical generation. Free radicals. Bad, bad news all around. And again, back to uh, my simplistic mind, the oxygen uh, gets com- competed with and uh, outcompeted, and the oxygen that's already there can't get <laughs> off. Sticks. Can't, can't yep. unload. So, right. so Jerry, unload. Can, can we pivot? And I mean, I, I think that's a great background um, on the, the, the molecule and the toxicity. But how, how are these patients going to present to us? What are we going to see clinically? And what's the most common scenario you see clinically? Sure, absolutely. I, and I think that makes what makes carbon monoxide so difficult. And it can be very dangerous from that standpoint because really the symptoms are very nonspecific. And I think you all have, you know, through our training and education, everything, we've all been told how it's just a great mimic of so many other things, like classically, like a viral illness, like the flu. So this contributes to misdiagnosis of, of many of these cases by health professionals inside and outside the hospital, and especially by lay people. But one of the most common symptoms you can see consistently reported is headache. Headache is a biggie. A lot of these patients will complain of headache. Um, the other symptoms are, again, they're, they're vague and nonspecific. Dizziness, fatigue, nausea, vomiting. Um, people may have mild confusion all the way raging to coma as far as altered mental status goes. Patients may experience chest pain, shortness of breath, and, and often these patients, if they're critically ill, they may be found down, unable to provide any history. You may not even have a history of exposure. I think what says it best is I can remember back at IU at Indiana University, they had a great slide where it was just like a picture of the tracker board, and it had like 35 patients listed there, and they're like, pick out the patients that could possibly be carbon monoxide, and as you go down that board, you see chest pain, shortness of breath, headache, vomiting, altered, and then you realize like two-thirds of the patients on the board could have possibly been carbon monoxide poisoning. Yeah, and so one of the clues that I think of, I think that's a, uh, 
you know, kind of a great synopsis that this is this is a great mimicker. Uh, but, you know, you have to kind of I, I always think of it very simplistic. Is it the right season? Keep it on your differential. And if you're lucky, are there similar multiple patients in the house with the same exact symptoms with some same exposure? And, and I would throw in for the, you know, our audience is, is uh, not emergency physicians or toxicologists. We're talking the paramedics out there. And the one advantage I think the paramedics have above other emergency providers is not only do they have uh, the patient symptoms and, uh, you know, the initial presentation as far as clinical signs, but they have the situation. And I think situational awareness right. as far as carbon monoxide Absolutely. poison goes is huge because you see where the patient is when they present, even if the patient doesn't realize that's a dangerous situation. Right. right. Absolutely. And we were going to get into treatment next, but uh, I, I have a question for you, Jerry. We had a case here not too long ago of a intentional suicide uh, by car in a closed garage. Can you comment on that? Do you guys see that frequently where you practice? And then can you pivot into, you know, once we make this presumptive diagnosis that the patient may have CO toxicity, how, how should we approach or approach our therapies in the field uh, to maximize their outcome when you get them? Yeah, great question, Rob. I, I think first and foremost is if you look at the number of cases over the, over the many years, there have been fewer unintentional or accidental deaths from exposure, but the intentionals have, have definitely went up. And I, you know, I know it's kind of almost classic, but the classic parking your car in an enclosed place like the garage, shutting it and leaving the car running, um, it's, it's very common, I'd say, across the country. Um, really, and uh, that still does lead to a significant amount of morbidity and mortality. If, if you look at the fatalities from carbon monoxide, I think upwards of two-thirds of them are intentional exposures, um, and patients do that from a number of ways, but I would say one of the more common ones is to do that. Now, the good news is, as opposed to decade, decades ago before that catalytic converter and um, you know the efficiency of cars, you know, years ago, this was a much more um, toxic. You know, it was much more easy to expose yourself to a really toxic dose. But I've been taking care. I, I mean, the classic story that I had when I was a fellow was a gentleman was intoxicated. He was going to run inside his home and um, just pick something up and come back out to the garage, so he never shut the car off. Um, but apparently, uh, sat down for a moment, ended up passing out, and going to sleep, and then it poisoned his entire extended family throughout the entire, I believe it was a townhome. And there were children, elderly, middle-aged folks, and obviously their symptoms vary widely. But there's a, you know, an exact example of what you're talking about where a car was left running in an enclosed space um, and, and poisoned really one whole half of a building. Um, and everybody was affected to some degree, some more severe than others. We, uh, so, we, talk, we yeah. talked before the podcast uh, too, Jerry, when I sent you the notes and we kind of pre-planned what we were going to discuss. And here in, in Conroe, in Montgomery County, we, we're just a few miles away from, from Lake Conroe, which plenty of boat traffic, plenty of summertime activity. You know, we're talking about carbon monoxide in relation to winter, kerosene heater generators, um, and, the, and the like. But you actually brought up a situation that I had never thought about that I wanted you to just sort of touch on before we move on to treatment, and that is the uh, potential for carbon monoxide exposure in and around boats. Tell me, tell me a little more about the case we talked about and how that can, how that can happen. Yeah, there's definitely been, you know, several papers written specifically on the subject of carbon monoxide and uh, concerns with the, uh, you know, recreational boating. Um, one of the, the big risks there is any boat, especially with a cabin, so any boat with an enclosed space, 
Um, and those boats that also have, say, like an it's, it's open underneath, but maybe it's enclosed as far as from being on the, on the water, the people that would go underneath the boat. If the boat is running at all, carbon dioxide can definitely be trapped underneath the boat. So if somebody like went under the boat and came up underneath the boat, they could literally be just mostly CO under there and they could lose consciousness very rapidly um, and then drown, unfortunately. You can also see that if a boat's running, even if it's not in an enclosed space, just like if you were at the back of a car's exhaust, if you are literally right at the exhaust and you're like hanging on the boat, you could become carbon dioxide poisoned, even if it's not in an enclosed space. So anything that people are, you know, running to, whether it be a grill, you know, maybe it's a little chilly on the water or anything like that at all, you could definitely see um, those types of effects too. Um because anything that's combusting is producing carbon monoxide, so yeah, carbon. So. so even under a pontoon, under a under a deck, any enclosed spaces, you're burning fuel, you're at risk. So I think those are some situations that I hadn't uh, personally thought of, thought of. And you know, here with the with the lake close by, it's something for our paramedics to think about and, and at least put on the radar. So let's yeah. let's uh, kind of move on into on into treatment. And this is one that, uh, from a pre-hospital standpoint. Uh, is uh, fairly simple and straightforward. What's our what's our uh, best uh, uh, best effort? What's our best best method of treating these folks, Jerry? Absolutely. Well, I, I think first and foremost, we, we as we already mentioned, I think being suspicious of carbon dioxide poisoning is probably one of the most extremely important points to take away from today's discussion. I think you know not considering in your differential, as Rob mentioned, could be a major error and one that could lead to bad outcomes in these patients. So first of all, considering on the differential. And then, you know, you think whether it's the situation that you're coming into or the patient's symptoms that tip you off to this, the biggest thing is to kind of get that patient removed from that exposure and also yourself um, from that exposure. And then once that's been established, you know, the patient receive 100% O2 therapy by non-rebreather um, while they're being transported. I think another little point in basic EMS thing is anyone who's altered, whether it's confusion or unresponsive, they should all get an ACCI check, right? I mean, we need to make sure that these people have a normal blood glucose because that's something readily treatable um, right there in the pre-hospital situation. Um, these patients should have cardiac monitoring. Um, IV access should be established, and um, especially for those that have systemic symptoms um, like chest pain, shortness of breath, coma, I mean, obviously, kind of straightforward, common sense things. And, and obviously, in those critically ill patients, you're, you're taking care of A, Bs, and Cs first, right? Airway breathing, circulation. If the patient's hypotensive, give them a fluid bolus. Um, some of these patients that are critically ill may even require basal pressures, especially once they read the hospital, uh, reach the hospital, because it's been well described, too, that carbon dioxide can definitely have kind of a myocardial stunning or depressive effect um, and really decrease injection fraction. So you may even see these patients looking a little shocky. Absolutely. And there's no, there's no magic to the 100% non-rebreather. You're just trying to outcompete and unstick, uh, basically uh, kind of combat the, uh, the effects of the carbon monoxide effect on the hemoglobin um, in, a, in just right. a competitive, from a competitive standpoint, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So, you're, you know, the half-life on room air, I mean, it depends on the study you look at, but the mean is usually around five hours. You can decrease that to 60 to 90 minutes with 100% FiO2. And I know we're going to talk about hyperbarics a little bit later, but to give you an idea, hyperbarics may decrease that to 20 or 30 minutes as far as the half-life goes. So oxygen definitely decreases the half-life of carbon monoxide. So this is this is one situation for the listeners out there that have been following the podcast. We recent episode on uh, 
oxygen toxicity and unnecessarily applying uh, 100% uh, FiO2 or uh, four liters nasal cannula in low risk chest pain patients. This is a situation of carbon monoxide toxicity or suspected CO poisoning that we do want to go ahead and put the mask on and crank up the oxygen. So let's roll into, roll into our next one, uh, Dr. Dixon. Yeah, you know, and, but before we get to like, we want to talk about the efficacy of picking it up on these portable CO detectors and some of the detectors that are in the, 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 um, uh, monitors that we use out here, Jerry, but I want to do some myth busting while we're on kind of symptoms and what they look like. Has anyone in, in, in practice ever seen cherry red lips? Is that, does that really exist? Oh, I wouldn't use it as de de for dependable as far as evaluating these patients, even patients, you know, when they usually comment on that, Rob, or where that's been reported, is it autopsy? It's usually when they're <laughs> being where you, you're, you're generally fairly pale to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I would not use that to rule in or rule yeah, it's in, out. Yeah, it's in like every board. book, right? I could I could go get my sure. paramedic book from my office, and I would find that probably in the first paragraph of, of carbon monoxide toxicity. Yeah. It's just kind that of a myth that's propagated. So what Dr. Snow is saying is this is this is somewhat of a vague diagnosis. Look at the situation. Think about that wide differential, um, but don't, don't write home on just one clinical appearance, i.e. this this bright red, cherry red lips uh, appearance of patients. Absolutely, Rob. I wouldn't let that make me think more of it, and I definitely would not let it exclude. You know, that being absent would not make me think, oh, this can't be CO because they don't have that physical exam finding. Okay. Absolutely. Can you comment on the on the CO detectors? Do you guys use them out there? Do your EMS system use them? And what's your, what's your experience with those? I don't know specifically what device they have here. Um, you know, my experience goes back um, to residency. Um, one thing I would like to mention, Rob, that most of the listeners probably actually do know, but I think it's a really important takeaway point because I still see even physicians, unfortunately, make this error. And that is that conventional pulse oximetry cannot but distinguish between carbon monoxide um, or car carboxyhemoglobin and oxyhemoglobin. So a normal saturation on conventional pulse ox is not helpful. It's not reassuring. It really doesn't tell you anything. Um, but I have definitely, you know, been around in, say, like a trauma situation where there was a um, house fire, and they go, oh, well, the patient sats are okay. And I'm like, that's not helpful at all. Um, so, you, I mean, you definitely want to make sure that you, you're not let, letting that reassure you or make you feel better about the patient. But um, pulse co-oximetry has been around probably going back to about 2005. And the difference is, is it's able to measure multiple different species um, of hemoglobin, including co-oximetry and even met hemoglobinemia, for example. Um, and it does this by using eight different wavelengths of light instead of the two that you see with conventional pulse ox. And these devices have an upside too, right? They're fast, they're not invasive, they're capable of continuous measurement. And it would be easy to quickly assess multiple different patients. Unfortunately, when they looked at these studies, there are some incidents of false positives as well as falsely no low negative results um, in the studies that have been performed. So I don't think it's clearly been established what roles these devices play um, in carbon monoxide poisoning. And I think especially when they're compared to like what I would consider the gold standard, which is going to be at the hospital office, which is a CO blood level um, done in the laboratory. Yeah, and so well, I think the, we need more. We need more data. Yeah, and for EMS providers out there that have these, I don't think we want to come across as saying they're useless 
right, or, or that you should hang your hat on them 100% of the time, you know, put them as part of your, your puzzle, right? And the puzzle is going to also include the patient, the patient's presentation, the situation, and the other things that we've hit on in the podcast. And if a patient looks like carbon monoxide and smells like carbon monoxide and walks like carbon monoxide and your portable monitor is questionable, then put the 100% non-rebreather mask and, and roll on. Right, we, get, we have no downside right? there. And, and and on the flip side, if the patient is uh, asymptomatic and appears normal and the carbon monoxide level is high, you probably can still go ahead and throw the, the mask on and let the, let, the, uh, let the blood gas at the hospital sort that out. Uh, finally, yeah. we, we would, before we close out, Jerry, we would be remiss, and I know some of our listeners out there are going to ask a question about hyperbaric uh, treatment and carbon monoxide poisoning. Obviously, it's not something that we undertake um, in the EMS setting, but sometimes we transfer these patients. Um, we know that that potentially is, is a, a definitive care option for some, some folks. Uh, it's been debated back and forth uh, since, I think, the time that I started training. What's the theoretical benefit? You kind of hit on that. It's basically that it makes the carboxyhemoglobin half-life much, much, much shorter. Um, how is that held up in actual practice? Who's, who's, who are we diving today? Okay, well, this is definitely a topic that's not without some controversy, and the and the human studies have definitely shown, um, you know, some mixed results. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about kind of how this has kind of moved forward. So the obvious effect that we already talked about, but perhaps maybe not the most important when it comes to the symptoms, is the decrease in the half life of carbon monoxide from, like I said, around five hours down to a half hour or so. Um, when you look at hyperbarics, I mean, 100% FiO2, you know, at two and a half to maybe three atmospheres. But when you look at animal models, you know, it, it has been shown that HBO prevents brain lipoperoxidation. It helps prevent ischemic perfusion injury. It also helps acceler accelerate the, the recovery or the regeneration of inactivated cytochrome oxidase. And that goes back to when I said oxidative phosphorylation, you know, and the production of ATP. So it, it helps restore that body's ability to you know, to generate energy, which is obviously going to be helpful, especially to the brain and the heart. And then when you get, get again with the studies, animal studies that did peer be a reversal of the inflammatory effects, as well as the myocardial dysfunction that was caused by CO. So when you look at the basic science and animal models, really, you know, HBO look like it'd be pretty beneficial. But when you look at the clinical studies in humans and the effectiveness in preventing neurological injuries, specifically delayed neurological sequelae, which we worry about so much, there have been studies that showed benefit and some others that did not. And the problem is, is every single one of these studies is a little different. None of them were done the same. Some of them had more patients than others. They used different atmospheres. They you know, started at different times, so it's really muddy. So no clear benefit has been established, but on the other hand, the possibility of benefit has not been ruled out either. So clearly still an area of controversy. Um, there have been some specific indications that have been kind of put out there um, by ASAP and some other um, organizations as far as maybe who should we be diving. Um, and when you look at that, and again, no, I want to say that there's no one symptom historically or anything about the patient per se that can, all those patients are going to have bad outcomes. So you'll, you'll say people, people at the age of over 36, patients with a loss of consciousness are two good examples where there is an association that those people tend to develop more long-term sequelae. 
But just because you have loss of consciousness or just because you're over the age of 36 and you have carbon dioxide poison doesn't mean that's going to happen to you. So people without those factors are going to have problems and people, you know, with with those problems don't end up having them. So but I think it's reasonable. And I think most providers, if somebody was critically ill from carbon dioxide poison, if they had coma, seizure, neurological defects, like they had a stroke, age of people that are you know eight, over the age of 36, People that seem to have had a prolonged exposure or like a soaking is what a lot of references, that's the term a lot of references use. So those are exposures like maybe over 24 hours. So somebody was in a house with an elevated CO level for more than a day. Those are all examples of where that may be indications to die. And some people, even though carbon monoxide does, toxicity does not correlate well with levels at all. In other words, people will have very bad outcomes with low levels. Some people will recover incident-free at higher levels. Some people will use a carbon monoxide level of greater than 25 as a possible indication. And, and that's percentage, correct? That's how it's expressed? That is 25%. That is exactly correct, Rob. Well, that, that is right. I, I feel uh, at this point like uh, my, my brain is full. Uh, this has been uh, uh, super helpful for me. Hopefully the listeners out there feel the same way. This is a topic, again, we don't see uh, every day. It's not. Uh, super common, but it's one we definitely need to be aware about, aware of, and have have on our differential list, especially as the weather gets colder. Uh, you know, in the in you know in Phoenix and in Arizona and Southeast Texas, where uh, people start up kerosene heaters, it's that it's that time of year to be thinking about. It may not be the flu; it may be carbon monoxide. So keep that on your keep that on your list. Keep that on your differential. If you have questions for uh, us here at the podcast or for Jerry, uh, send us an email at the uh, podcast email. And uh, we'll talk to everybody soon. Thanks, Jerry, for joining us. Thanks, Dr. Dixon. Everybody have a good day. All right. Thanks, Dave. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.